You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Watkins. I'm director here at ODI. Uh, I, I think none of you need introduction to our guests this morning, Angus Deed from Princeton University. Angus, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. For those of you who don't uh, know of Angus and, and his work, which I suspect uh, applies to nobody in, in this room, uh, Angus won the Nobel Prize in 2015 for his work in three areas, which was um, estimating uh, demand functions, work that he did with John Mulbauer in uh, Oxford in the 1980s, his work on uh, consumption, and his work on the measurement of poverty uh, and well-being in developing countries. Uh, more, more recently, and we're going to focus more on this this morning, Angus has written, has really, I think, in some sense, brought together many of your life's interests in this fantastic book, The Great Escape, which is a panoramic overview of global progress in health and well-being and the various linkages between uh, income and consumption and health outcomes. So, Angus, huge welcome to you. Thank you for, for being here with us. Um, yeah, we're all a bit down in the dumps in the UK at the moment for various reasons. So I want to start with some uh, positive stories. And may, maybe, you know, if you could just give us, because a lot of this is an extraordinarily positive story of human yeah. Progress. So maybe if you could just start by <laughs> talking us through some of that story. Thanks very much, Kevin. It's, it's terrific to be here. Um, Kevin and I have corresponded over the years, but we've never actually met. So it's the first for me too, and it's really nice to be here and talk to you all. Um, I think it's a really good way to start, and it's the way you know people always want to talk about the awful stuff that's going on <laughs> right now. Um, all the various crises in the world. And it's true that the world looks like a pretty bleak place uh, right now. But whenever people want to talk about how bleak it is, I emphasize, you know, you should go back 250 years and think about what it looked like then, or even what it looked like for your parents or for your grandparents. You don't have to go back 250 years. And put in the context of our problems now, the fact that we're so much better off. You know, you might say the world is a mess today, but the world is also better today than it's ever been in the past. And both of those statements could be basically true um, at the same time. And in particular, I mean, in the book, I focus on two dimensions of that. One is the sort of material well-being um, dimension, which is just, if you like, that our incomes are much higher. We have more stuff um, than we used to have a long time ago, um, and also that our health, which may be much more fundamental than having stuff, is just much better. So that, you know, children, we still have many children dying in the world who shouldn't be dying, but it used to be um, that an enormous fraction of kids, even in Britain, um, sort of died before their fifth birthday. Um, when my father was born, I, I was born in Edinburgh. Um, my father was born in a mining village in Yorkshire. It used to be a mining village. It's not a mining village anymore. Um, when my father was born in the mining village in Yorkshire in 1918, 
um, the mortality rate in England as a whole, and it must have been worse in Thurcroft, um, was higher than the median um, mortality rate in sub-Saharan Africa today, for instance. And you know, that's not so long ago. I mean, my father died seven years ago. He would have been um, around 98 now. So there are people alive now who, when they were born, the infant child mortality rates were comparable to sub-Saharan Africa. So that, that's just a huge step in a very short period of time. And now we just don't expect babies to die at all. A few of them do, but it's a really, really um, tiny number. Even when I was born in Edinburgh, the life expectancy in Edinburgh, which has never been great, you know, the, all those stories about fried Mars bars, that sort of thing, um, life expectancy in Edinburgh was um, about what it is in India um, today. And, you know, I'm not a young man, but that wasn't that long ago. So, you know, we made progress. And if you go back all the way to before the Industrial Revolution, you know, in the middle of the 18th century, um, when life expectancy was in the 30s and 40s, um, there's just been this huge amount of progress. Now, that's not to say that you know, there have not been setbacks. You know, there have been awful things happened, and many of the most awful things happened in the last hundred years. Um, but nevertheless, there, there's this enormously strong drive for the world to be better, for people to make progress, to live longer, and to be better off, not to see their children die. And, you know, this, that has been absolutely extraordinary. And, I think that's important for thinking through where we are now into the future because you say, where does that come from? And ultimately, it's because people have this very, very deep desire to improve their lot um, and to improve their children's lot um, as well. And we sort of know ever since the Enlightenment, for me, the Enlightenment is the sort of key beginning of all this. We know that the power of human reason and empirical evidence and science is really capable of improving these things. And so I'm a great optimist in the long run, um, even though if you look at what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis, it's sometimes very hard to be optimistic. So the book is largely, most of the book is sort of paints that picture um, from sort of prehistoric times through to today in both income and wealth. And there's lots of things I don't talk about, like the huge increase in education that's happened worldwide um, over the last 30, 50 years. I mean, in India, you see little girls going to school uh, in areas where none of their mothers can read and write, for instance. And that's just a huge change um, for the better. Um, democracy is much more widespread around the world today than it's ever been. And again, we see setbacks all the time. We tend to focus on the setbacks, but if you just do the, you know, the counting, um, many, many more people have the chance to influence the way their countries work than has ever been true in the past. So it's just if you count up all these things that make life worth living, um, they're all getting better in the long run, even if many of them are under threat in the short run. Okay, so maybe let's turn to the, the other side of the story and one which you highlight in the book. The, um, and to take child survival as the illustrator, that you that something like uh, I think you give a figure of fifteen percent of zero to four year olds die every year. That's overwhelmingly in low income countries. 
And they, you know, and I, I guess one of the central tenets in the book is that, you know, what had previously been assumed to be this sort of very direct relationship between income growth and improvements in child survival, it's not necessarily because of what's happening on the incomes. You know, the, the Preston yeah, curve sure. stuff is only a partial explanation. So I, I guess the obvious question that arises out of that is that, you know, why in a world in which knowledge is so transferable and the benefits of science are so transferable and it's and and the importance of income is perhaps less significant than had previously been thought do we still have this picture of you know so many child deaths and, and basic health problems in in the poorest countries right so that that's sort of the puzzle and in some sense that's what i'm grappling with throughout the book I mean, and you know, a lot of the literature talks about the diseases or deaths of poverty as if it were just obvious that low income is a cause of those things. Um, but to me, as I've thought about this over the last 20 or 30 years that I've been thinking about these things, um, I think actually policy is, is much more important than that account um, tends to give. I mean, there's actually things we can really do or that people can really do to make things um, better. And so it's just not, I mean, I mean, this idea somehow that if we get economic growth, everything will look after itself um, is one of the corollaries of believing that it's all poverty. And, you know, it's a very negative corollary in some sense. And if you look around the world, I think you'll see episodes which illustrate that that's really not true. You know, China is one of the best examples, I think, because if you look at what happened um, before the reforms, you know, we, we tend to focus in China on, you know, not very much economic growth after the revolution and so on until the 1970s, and then they told people to go out and get rich, and boy did they get rich, and you get this incredible economic growth, and it took billions or close to a billion people out of poverty. That's the positive side of the story, but there's a sort of negative side too, which is up until 1975, there was a huge government focus on public health. Um, there's a famous book called The Way with All Pests, which talks about Mao's China um, in the time before the reforms and the enormous attention that was given to public health and local public health and so on. And if you look at that period, all through that period, infant and child mortality is falling like a stone. Um, and then they said, okay, go get rich. So they all went and get rich, but they stopped looking after <coughs> public health anymore. And you can see that for about 25 years after that, absolutely nothing happened. Um, to infant mortality. So, you know, if you want to tell the story that it's growth that drives down infant mortality, you know, China's the amazing counterexample um, because growth actually increased <laughs> infant mortality. But of course, what's really going on here is that state capacity was switched away from doing something about children dying and moved its entire focus towards. Uh, and, you know, China being the sort of place it is, um, when the government changes its attention from one thing to another, things really happen. Whereas in India, they declare they're going to do something, but nothing ever happened. And in fact, if you look at India, it's a milder version of the same story. You know, after the reforms, there's quite a lot more economic growth. But, you know, infant and child mortality rates have just steadily um, declined through that period. So to me, the, the key issue here is I think you get high economic growth, um, when there's the state is focused towards doing that, and you get big improvements in health when the state is focused to do this. I don't think we can improve health through the market entirely by itself. <laughs> this is something that we have to do at least in part collectively, and government plays a really important 
role in that. So I think that's the solution of this puzzle, that you know, really, really poor countries have lousy government. And so it's not surprising that the people are poor and the people are sick because you know that's where that comes from. But you can break that link. And it's, it's in some sense a very hopeful um, analysis because it says that policy can do something about this. Whether you can do that from outside as opposed to doing it internally is another question. Let me maybe just to go to a slightly more parochial question. The, you know that you describe yourself as an optimist, and, and and actually in many ways it's an incredibly optimistic book. And if you if you look back over, and this is the more parochial bit, the Millennium Development Goal period, and you know the the first fifteen years of of this century, it has been a period of absolutely extraordinary progress on many of these basic indicators. I, I guess the challenge as you look ahead is that more and more of the sort of problems that you're concerned with, you know, whether it's child survival, access to basic water and sanitation, the, the, the deprivations are increasingly concentrated in countries affected by conflict, and or they affect particularly marginalised groups, which are, you know, are more difficult to reach. And I, I so the, the question is looking ahead to the target date for the Sustainable Development Goals of 2030 uh, and the ambition that's been set on, you know, <coughs> no avoidable child death, et cetera, et cetera. How, how optimistic are you? Uh, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of either the MDGs, the SDGs. I mean, I, I'm not sure this is just a good way to do things. Um, you know, and if, if you deconstruct what you just said, I mean, the idea that war is bad for children you know, I don't see why we have to filter that through the SDGs. I mean, you know, war is always going to be bad for children, no matter where it happens, or what our pretend or our real commitments are uh, <laughs> to doing something about it. So I'm not sure I think about it that way. But I don't think I don't think there's any limit. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I discovered this after I, I used to draw a graph um, for my students at Princeton, in which I showed the decline in infant mortality. Um, over time and whether it was converging or not. And after doing this for about five years, I realized I was telling them something different every year. And one of the things that's sort of interesting is <laughs> if you draw that on a log scale, you get a completely different answer from me if you draw it on a level scale. And what's actually going on there is the big increases, big decreases in the level of infant child mortality, of course, have happened in the poor countries. But the biggest proportional decreases have happened in places like Switzerland and so on. You know, the rich countries are still decreasing. So it's sort of one of, if, if it's like the last mile, you know, in the hare and the tortoise, if you say half and half and half and half and half, you can go on forever, um, even though you're never really catching up. So um, I think it, it's, I think we can still make an enormous amount of progress. And even when you get down to rates like six per thousand or something, you can get them down to three per thousand in the country. But, but the, the question I, uh, the, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, the specific challenges, because as you say, a lot of this is about states and institutions, yeah. but the states and institutions in the countries that account for a growing share of the, right. the last mile, you know, are, are not states and institutions that one would automatically associate with the sort of rates of progress we've had over the last 15 years. And so I guess the, the question is, is, you know, is there something distinctive and different about the type of challenges to be addressed over the next period to, to sustain progress? 
Yeah, it may be. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I go back to what I think. I, I'm not sure when I revised what I said, that, you know, war is bad for children, you know. So yeah. it may be that peacemaking is the crucial thing, um, rather than focusing on, um, you know, drugs or focusing on bad nets or whatever has been successful. Okay. Uh, so I, I wanted to turn now to a, a very simple question that I know doesn't have a simple answer. That you, you've you've been involved in the commission that uh, the World Bank set up on uh, the, the measurement of poverty and there's, you know, we've just had this quite protracted debate about the new poverty thresholds that have been set by the bank. You know, a lot of your life's work has been trying to address this question of how do we compare consumption across countries. So the, the, the very simple question with no simple answer is, is, is why is it so damn difficult? Really good question. I think most of my life work has been concerned with cleaning up after the bank when they've uh, <laughs> sort of screwed up the way they measure the poverty line. Um, it's interesting, right, because this seems like it's a really straightforward thing. I mean, you set some number, you wander around the world and you find out who's below that number and you add them up. You know, how hard can that be? Um, and I think there are two problems, um, or two, at least two big problems. And, you know, I'm going to send you all to sleep, so stop me when you think people are nodding off, right? Um, you know, th th these sort of data issues are something that, you know, only their mothers can love, you know, and it's very hard to persuade people that they should pay any attention to these at all. But, you know, they are incredibly important because, you know, I, I may back away from the importance in a minute, but I do want to say, if you don't have measures of how well you're doing, then... You, you really have no idea what you're talking about. So actually keeping track of these things is unbelievably important. And we ought to be devoting, I think, more resources than we are to actually figuring out whether things are actually working or not at the most basic level, just like counting. So what are the particular difficulties of poverty? Um, if you want a global poverty measure, um, meaning you're using the same standard everywhere, um, then that's really hard because you want a poverty line that means exactly the same thing in the Central African Republic as it does in Bangladesh. And now that we brought the whole world into these things, it has to mean the same thing in the United States or in Canberra or wherever you want to be. And it, that again sounds sort of simpler than it is, um, but it's really, really hard because what you're trying to do is you have to convert between currencies. So that, that's, you want to know what $2 a day means in the United States and what's the comparable thing in Bangladesh um, or in the Central African Republic. Well, I mean, you can go there and see what you can get for $2 a day. But what happens if you get there and you discover that in two different countries, people consume completely different goods? Um, and so that's one of the problems. You go to Ethiopia and people, really poor people, are eating TAF all the time. There is no TAF in the United States or in Bangladesh. So how do you make that comparison? Well, you sort of can't. And, and there are just a lot of shortcuts around that which make it really very hard. Um, there's lots of things that are not comparable across countries, like some countries provide a lot of health care and education for people, which is an important part of the consumption. Other countries get it through the market. And so if you're measuring those things, how do you allow for that? How do you allow for the fact that some countries are rather good at providing this stuff, and other countries spend a lot of money on it, but the healthcare workers and the school teachers don't show up for work? I mean, how is that built into these numbers? So 
<laughs> there's been a lot of difficulty doing that. And it turns out you can make pretty good comparisons between countries that are nearby. So, you know, Eurostat does, these are called PPPs, which are the Purchasing Power Parity Exchange Rates. Eurostat does this for France and Germany and Britain and so on, and that's not so hard because your consumption patterns are so similar. Um, you can also go to Africa and you can do it between Sudan and Egypt, you know, where they all eat perch out of the Nile, and that's an important part of the good. But what do you do about Nile perch when you get to Birmingham? Well, there are no Nile perch in Birmingham, you know, and, and so there's just a lot of stuff like that that gets really hard. And these comparisons over big distances, you know, converting a dollar into Kenyan shillings um, gets to be really, really hard. And what has happened is, you know, ever since um, the University of Pennsylvania started doing these things in the early 70s and 60s, late 60s, um, the numbers have tended to be a bit unstable. So every time they do a new round, you get a whole set of new PPPs, and then all the poverty numbers get messed up, and they, no one understands what they are. So there's this crystal clear. Um, clarity associated with a dollar a day or two dollar a day. But it, you know, as soon as you try to explain to someone what it really is, um, then it becomes sort of impossible. And you could say, well, that's true of everything. You know, the CPI or the RPI or whatever it's called here, is it CPI, price index? Um, you know, sounds like a very simple concept. And of course, you know, when you try to figure out how it's actually made, it's like getting in the cockpit of an airplane or something. It's just incredibly complicated. Um, on the other hand, the, the, you can handle that because it's true enough to the concept. I think with these PPPs, that has been really hard. The other thing that's really hard is um, the data. You know, you, you, the, these countries are running household surveys. Um, the household surveys are measuring how much people spend. And so once again, you're trying to find the households that are spending less than $2 per capita per day in local currency. And those surveys are not comparable over time in many cases, especially in Africa, where you know they might do a survey for three months here, and then five years later, they do another one in another three months of the year, and they're just not comparable at all. And then once again, you run up against this question that some include healthcare and some of them don't include healthcare and so on. So they're not invariant to whether the market or the government supplies these things, which is a very serious issue um, for poor people. Um, and especially in Africa, but not just in Africa. I mean, in India, I spent a lot of my life working on the issue that the growth that you see in the national accounts simply does not show up in the household surveys. I mean, Kevin and I have talked about this over the years. So, you know, the left tend to seize on the household survey and say globalization and neoliberalism has impoverished all Indians, right? Whereas the right ignore the household surveys and say, look, GDP shows that consumption is growing at 10% a year, whatever it is. There is no poverty left. And until you can reconcile those two things, which we haven't reconciled, that everybody's free to say whatever they want. You know, and that is what you see in the Indian debate with the left saying impoverishment through globalization and the right saying that poverty was abolished a long time ago. And, you know, people like me who are trying to get in the middle of that are, are not well armed um, to do that. So the, the, the poor quality of the data and the difficulty of the PPPs. So to me, there's a real question as to whether we should back away from this, you know, the, these counts these dollar a day are now two dollar a day counts. You know, it's, I mean, I, mean <laughs> I just said at the beginning, it's very important to measure things. Um, but if it's this hard and it's this weak, maybe we should be giving bigger focus to other 
targets that we can measure, like some of the health targets. I don't think they're the same things. I think it's a mistake to say that um, you know, infant mortality is a good proxy for income. I, I just don't think that's true. Um, but maybe we should just put less. But, but, but is the central conclusion that you draw from all this that you know that obviously measuring income deprivation in, in any country is important. Yeah. But that the value added of trying to do that on a global basis is close Perhaps. to yeah. is, is maybe not worth doing. I think that's right. I mean, the other thing is, domestically, you can have a domestic political debate about what these numbers mean. And that happens within India, for instance. You know, there are enormous amount of stuff in the newspapers, and the government, and the magazines and things. And the same in the US, and the same here. Um, and that debate, but that debate is just not happening at the global level. Um, you know, and people are using these dollar a day numbers as crutches for their own arguments instead of, you know, I, I believe that, you know, we, we often think that politics is the enemy of good data, you know, because we think politics corrupts data. But try doing data without politics, you know, and it's just a disaster. And that's some of what we got at the global level, because there are no global politics at this level. There's no global government. There's no accountability on the global, pe the people have reduced the global data. And so it's always going to be of somewhat lower quality. Okay. Um, so I, I, t I told you that was a simple question with no easy answer. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Thank you I can do that to any stuff. question. No, ask me my name and I'll make it complicated. Okay. Well, well uh, <laughs> try it on this one. Um, so you, 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 you wrote um, a really interesting piece in Project Syndicate recently, which builds on one of the themes in the book. I mean, in the, in the Project Syndicate piece, you call it uh, global cosmopolitanism. Of Cosmopolitan <coughs> prioritarianism <laughs> makes it even worse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But it, but it's the basic argument that you know that the focus on empathy and altruism in international development has deflected attention, if you like, from our own backyards, and that that's had political and social consequences. And you know, you give the example of the you know what the marginalisation of the middle downwards in the U.S. Right. And in a sense, it's very topical. I think. For this country, because if you look at the outcome of the Brexit yeah. discussion, there was a real sense that communities and people who are marginalised voted Leave as a protest against their marginalisation rather than on the, the, the Europe issue. So may, maybe if you could just start off by summarising or recapping some of your, your thoughts on that, that that you set out in the piece, and then we'll, we'll follow up. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things, just to come to this cosmopolitan prioritarianism, I mean, I think a lot of us have bought into this. You probably haven't because you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> yeah. the prioritarianism is, is a term that the philosopher Derek Parfit at Oxford had invented, but, you know, Tony Atkinson had thought of it long before, which is that when you're thinking about public policy, you should give priority to the poorer person over the richer person. Okay. And... Cosmopolitan was to suggest you should do that on a worldwide basis. So a lot of the reasons a lot of us are here and thinking about these issues is because we think the poorest people in the world are people in Africa or maybe people in South Asia, and those deserve an enormous amount of ethical and moral attention from those of us who do pretty well. So that, that's the idea. So what had attracted my attention to this was really a, whether that's right ethically, um, 
or and b um, whether uh, it's true that the poorest people in the world are in those countries and there's been some recent very disturbing work in the u.s suggesting that about three million people a year in the u.s are living on under two dollars a day which is the um, you know african asian the global standard and of course there's been a lot about debate about whether these numbers are right or not and when you get down to it, what you're really talking about here is housing, you know, because if you're doing a household survey in India and you're living in a village, housing is of negligible cost and really doesn't show up in the poverty numbers at all. But if you're trying to make ends meet in Milwaukee um, or in Chicago, um, you might be spending 80% of your budget um, on housing um, and you're being evicted on a daily basis. You know, there's just really, really bad things happening. And horrible stories of people, you know, having to prostitute themselves or put their children in danger in order to find a place to live. So, you know, and these are things that the dollar a day or two dollar a day is just not going to capture. But so there's been a lot of work suggesting there are people in the U.S. who are in enormous distress, and they're not all um, African Americans living in the Mississippi Delta. These are people at the bottom of the labor market. Um, who are not getting jobs in Milwaukee or Chicago or Minnesota and so on. So uh, part of what I was just raising is maybe the poorest people are not there, they're here. You know, they're on the other side of the tracks instead of on the other side of the ocean um, in some sense. And then it fed into the stuff that Kevin was just talking about, which is, you know, there's a large feeling in the U.S. as here that, you know, the elites have walked away from a very large <coughs> fraction of the population who have not benefited from globalization or from economic growth or for automation or from the banks or whatever you like to think about it. So you've got this very <coughs> rapidly expanding income inequality. Um, so there are a few people, and I think of myself as one of those. I mean, you know, given where I grew up and where I am now, I mean, I'm a you know, poster child for the benefits of globalization. Um, but there's a lot of people that have just not seen any benefit from this at all and actually see threats. And those people in the U.S. have been voting for Donald Trump and, you know, in Britain they've been voting for Brexit. And you may not agree with their solutions, and I certainly don't think Mr. Trump is a solution to anything. Um, but you have to recognize that they have a legitimate point that their interests of not being well represented. I don't know as much about here, but they're in the U.S., you know, that white working class that used to be represented by unions and the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is now funded by the banks, the same as the Republican Party is, and there are no unions anymore. So, you know, those people just don't have, they're not fully participating in democracy. I mean, recently a couple of people, both Larry Summers and Joe Stiglitz, I saw going on about this, that you know, when people negotiate trade pacts, um, every, every corporation in the world has its lawyers there around the table. And there's no unions there, there's no public interest people there. There's, you know, so why is that happening? And, and so these people are just feel that they're not participating anymore, they're not being left behind. And when they get a chance to bite back, which in the US, um, presidential elections are not as controlled by money as the Congress is for example. So presidential elections are places where you can bite back. And of course, a referendum is a great place um, to bite back, mm. too. So I think that's a lot of what's happening. 
And could you, uh, I mean, th th this is related or potentially related to one of the issues that you've been working on with Anne Case recently on this um, interruption of the long-term increase in life expectancy across the board in the United States right. and some of the sort of health issues for, for middle-aged Americans that you've, you've been working on. Yeah, we don't really know that it's connected because we don't really know the causality, but there's this very disturbing thing, which some of you may not know about, that we'd find that if for white Americans, not for blacks who are doing pretty well, and nor for Hispanics who are doing about the same as people in Britain are, um, if you look at the age group from 45 to 54, um, so midlife people, um, then in almost all European countries, the mortality rate, the all-cause mortality rate, has been falling at about 2% a year. You know, improvements in heart disease, people <coughs> smoking, better statins, antihypertensives, you know, all the usual things that are making life better. Um, and then since 1998 in the US, we discovered in our work that, that, you know, you just look at these graphs and you see them all coming down together and then all of a sudden whites in the US start going off in the other direction. And for a long time we couldn't believe we haven't made a mistake because you know we're scouring all the CDC the Centers for Disease Control documents, and no one had mentioned this at all. And <laughs> we wrote this up and submitted it to the two leading medical journals, both of which rejected it immediately. Um, one of them because I think they never looked at it, and they've been very apologetic. So, um, <laughs> just so you can see, sometimes the. Um, you know, for those of you who write papers and get rejected all the time, you know, it sometimes happens to really important papers. And then the other one who did this thing, which I think of as something deeply wrong with economics and medicine, um, which is they said, you're obsessed with these numbers, but you don't know what's causing them. And if you don't know what's causing them, <laughs> they're of no interest to us. That's like calling the fire brigade and saying, my house is on fire. And the guy says, what caused the fire, sir? <laughs> and you say, I don't know. Please send the engine. They say, we can't send the engine until we know why your house is on fire. Sort of like it. So we, we, it got published eventually, and the, the, the world came to that. I mean, it, it was just, I've never written a paper like that. It, it, Obama had us into the Oval Office and took us one in each hand and said, we're going to talk about this paper. And he'd read it and underlined the footnotes and just amazing. So it's sort of every academic's dream that you get to talk to the President of the United States about your paper. So what Kevin said is right. It, it's potentially at least tied up to these other phenomena we're talking about. Um, so this all-cause mortality is rising among white um, midlife Americans, much more strongly among working class whites, defined in this case as people who have graduated from high school but don't have a BA. So they're sort of never went to college or got a BA. Um, it, it's, you can see it not just in midlife but everywhere else. Um, it's just not enough to overcome the positive forces. So it's only in this midlife thing where it's actually rising, all-cause mortality is rising, but you see it everywhere else. And when we first saw it, we thought it had to be, a, you know, heart disease decline was slowing down, you know, one of the big things. But it turned out what it was just blew us away because it's poisonings. And yeah, exactly. And when we saw this, we thought, you know, poisonings, you know, what's happening? You know, someone 
confused bread and rat poison or something. You know, I mean, it just. But what it turns out is that it's um, it's overdoses, drug overdoses, um, which the CDC classifies as poisonings. And it turns out that most of these are prescription drug overdoses. They're legal painkillers that have been prescribed by doctors. And there was a huge explosion by the pharmaceutical companies in the late, late 90s um, of what are essentially legalized heroin, um, drugs like OxyContin. Um, I don't know what it's called here, but Percocet is another one that's sort of similar. So these are very, very effective opioid-based painkillers. Um, that are very addictive, and people get addicted to them, and then they try to kick them, and then they lapse, relapse, go back to the original dose, and the body can't tolerate it anymore, and they die. Or more and more, um, the doctors are trying to stop prescribing, put the genie back in the bottle, um, and people are turning to heroin, which is now incredibly cheap. So you get people like people in this room you know, educated professional people. You meet, you know, respectable grandmothers who are addicted to heroin. It's entirely white epidemic. It's not affecting blacks, it's not affecting Hispanics. Completely different from, you know, drug explosions in the US in the past. And it's sort of amazing, even Republican politicians are now talking about doing something about this because they're losing friends too. There are people dying in the streets in Princeton, New Jersey, which is you know one of the richest towns in America. Um, and this thing has killed more people than HIV AIDS killed in America. These are people who would otherwise be alive and are now dead. And you don't have it here, which you want to be very grateful of, and other European countries don't either. And I think it's just because um, you, know, you don't let the pharmaceutical companies do here what they're allowed to do uh, yeah. in America. Okay, um, I would, the, the last area I wanted to cover before we throw it open for discussion okay. is on aid. Okay. Which is the last chapter <laughs> of the book. Um, I, I think you've got an audience of, that will cover the full spectrum. So, you know, you have people who don't think aid's a good thing, people who are agnostic, and people at the other okay. end. But you, uh, <coughs> you take quite a strong position on aid in, in the book, and, it, and it's really related, I guess, to the stance you have on the importance of institutions throughout the book. And your argument is that, you know, that aid in some sense is weakens the social contract between state and citizen. And that that's reflected in a number of indicators, like, you know, the quality of governance, uh, the tax to GDP ratios and, and others. And I, I guess just to press you on it, that, you know, that, that's an argument with intuitive Appeal. Well, you know, one can easily understand. You can understand the politics that might yeah. take a government in that direction. But there, there are also questions which, to some degree, can be empirically yeah. tested. And a lot of the empirical testing work on those questions. And I, I know, you know, you can pick and choose whatever one you want. But you know, there's there's work from um, Finn Tarp in yeah. wider and. Oliver Morrissey on, on those questions of the, you know, the, the relationship between aid and the quality of governance and aid and tax to GDP yeah. ratios and revenue, which basically shows either a very weak relationship or the counter of the, of the yeah. case yeah. That, that you make. So I'd be interested just first of all on, on your sort of assessment of, of, of that counter evidence. Okay. Um, 
I don't believe any of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you could elaborate a little bit if you, if you were so inclined. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, one of the things that's certainly on my agenda is to write, um, you know, explain why I believe that of those studies. Um, so I actually think the evidence is, is pretty strong. Um, well, let me put it this way. I think the evidence is ambivalent or negative if you look at it right. And some of the more celebrated studies have, to me, elementary mistakes in them, which are not. None of that stuff has ever been published in a good journal. Um, and so I, I do think there are real intellectual issues okay. there. So I'll, I'll come back to that a bit. But you know, one of the things I resist, and, and you know, as a young man, I would not have resisted this at all, which was I was sort of brought up to believe, unless you can do it econometrically, you know, that's the only way you think about it. And I really don't think that anymore, you know, because people say, what's the evidence? And by evidence, they mean preferably a randomized controlled trial, or if you don't have a randomized controlled trial, some really convincing econometric evidence. And, you know, there's just a ton of evidence out there, historical evidence, evidence from people who worked in the aid industry, you know, people dealing with humanitarian catastrophes, people dealing with governments all the time. And that seems to me is really important to evidence, too. And, you know, you can see these themes um, and, you know, just persistently there all the time that if you bring huge sums of money in from abroad, um, that is not going to do good things to the responsiveness of governments um, to their people. Um, and so I'm not against aid, so th that's very important. I mean, that's it's, come up to that, yeah, so. okay. yeah. it's just I would not do it in that one. Okay, but, can, but that, that's what I wanted to get on to right. next. It, it, you know, exactly what types of aid you're against, because, you know, you could argue that, you know, if you look at some of the really most extraordinary success stories on child survival, yeah. you know, access to water and sanitation education over the last 15 to 20 years, and, you know, you're thinking of countries like uh, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Nepal, Tanzania, Mozambique, even Kenya in, in some respects. Now, you know, they, these are all countries that wouldn't score high on the relationship between the state and the citizen, right. but uh, have all are all relatively dependent on aid in those specific budgets, where huge numbers of lives have been saved, arguably as a result of, of that aid and the right. investments in community health work and vaccination, or the global funds, you yep. know, which have, again, arguably saved you know hundreds of thousands, yes. if not millions yes. of lives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So presumably, you, you, you wouldn't be against that type of aid? Or I might be. Okay, um, so l let me start from the, that point. I mean, if you take something like antiretroviral, um, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are alive today who would otherwise be dead, and that stuff was all funded by aid, or a very large amount of that was. And so you simply cannot argue against that, um, and, you know, there's huge ethical significance from saving lives. And that's the easy bit of the argument, you know. And if that was all that was going on, not only I, but I think everybody on the planet would be in favor of those things. Um, you can also save lives in situations in which 
there are negative consequences of that. And they usually take the form, if I can go to sort of generality, that you worry about the fact that you're saving lives today at the price of costing lives sometime in the future. Right? So, you know, you, you and I talked a little bit before, but take an extreme case would be the Goma situation um, after the massacres in Rwanda. Um, and then, you know, there was a huge humanitarian emergency in Goma after the Hutus fled um, into eastern um, DRC. Um, and then it turned out that a very large share of the aid money was then being used to, well, some of it was being used for the humanitarian emergency, and perhaps two-thirds of it, depending on who you talk to, was being used to train up the murderers um, in order to reform and go back and finish the job that you've done. So, you know, that puts in a very acute form. Um, you're saving some children and um, their mothers in expense for um, arming a bunch of genocidal people. You know? um, these things always, not always, but are very common in times of conflict um, where you know, the warlords who are fighting the war will basically hold their own people hostage to aid agencies um, in order to meet their own ends. So it will take the form of, yes, you can bring them food, but you've got to bring us guns at the same time. Um, so, you know, you have to decide what you're going to do about that. And I think in the Goma case, where it was at its most extreme, um, most agency, aid agencies <coughs> led by MSF um, sort of pulled out and refused to have anything more to do with it. And MSF has certainly a, a long track record of trying very hard to think through these ethical issues. But, you know, even when Kagami swept in to sweep out all these guys, there were still new aid agencies that were going in there to help. So there was no supply, no lack of supply of people who were prepared to take the other side of that moral dilemma. Now, when you're talking about the Global Fund saving mm -hmm. people, um, you know, I think you have to then think about the mechanisms. And I've, I've been talking to them and trying to think this through because, you know, a lot of what they, the, the mechanism you might think of is, you know, if they're providing all this health care, which is saving lives, then the government that ought to be doing this is doing something else. And, you know, maybe these things will never get built. So if you look 10 or 15 years down the road, those clinics that should have been there and might have been there will not be there otherwise. And so you're undermining that. But, you know, that's, and most people, I think, would then say, let's save the lives now um, because the future is so uncertain and it's not, we're not training up a bunch of murderers. Um, but, you know, you can construct every case along that issue and where are you going to take that line depends on who you are. So if you're very strong in human rights, you would say, I'm sorry to lose the kids, but I'm not going to lose the kids because this guy is a mass murderer and we're not going to perpetuate his regime. And I have a lot of sympathy. I think that's my natural position. But on the other hand, you know, you have to be sort of consequentialist about this too and argue through that case. But you haven't asked me about the things I would do, which is, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do without going near the country at all, which could be extremely beneficial, like our trade policy. I mean, we do a lot of things at home which are hurting these people. The countries that are giving the most aid are also the ones that are supplying the most arms. 
you know, so the, you know, the Swedes are great aid givers, but they're selling guns all over the world too. And you know, the same is true of the Dutch, the same is true of the British, right? Mm -hmm. David Cameron's selling arms all over the place. I guess he's going to give that up after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good thing. Maybe that's the benefit of Brexit. Maybe Theresa May's not so keen to sell guns as uh, David Cameron was. Well, let, let's put it this way. I, I, I doubt the British aerospace are sitting there quaking in their boots at the prospect no, of, sure a, they're not. of a, yeah. a change-up. No, but, but that's, that's what you're talking It's a very yeah. odd thing, right? You say, why are they selling guns along with giving aid? And the answer is because you have two domestic constituencies, both of which, different domestic constituencies, both of which you want to do that. And the only people who don't figure in this are the people who are supposedly being helped in this. And there's something deeply wrong with that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, j just to give you a, 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 an ODI institutional <laughs> okay. take on this, then, yeah, we, we, we have a lot of people who are working on uh, <laughs> on trade yeah. and on exactly these issues. And, and, and I think it's totally right that, you know, you can't look at aid in isolation. I mean, you know, right. it's one part of the development talk. The, 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 the reason I wanted to press you on it a bit was just because it's, you know, it's, you know, it's such a live issue. In a, in a sense, here here in the UK, and I, I, I'm just going to ask one more related question on it before throwing it open. For yeah, 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 yeah. That, You know that if you, you know, we have a humanitarian policy group here in in ODI, mm -hmm. and the, they've built a very strong argument that you know what is wrong, you know that we should be doing humanitarian aid. That's a really important function because it, keep, it keeps people alive and so on. But the systems for delivering that aid are essentially cartelized. You know, the, the aid donors want to work through the big UN agencies, the, you know, the big international NGOs, and they're not providing enough support to people on the ground, you know, in Aleppo or on, on the border of Turkey and, mm -hmm. and, and Syria, which I, I guess relates more to a question of, you know, the modus operandi through which aid <coughs> is delivered. So there's one set of questions about that that I'd like your take on. And another is, you know, that Goma, you know, I doubt there's anybody in this room that would, would disagree with your, with, you know, your, your take on Goma, but if you look at a lot of what happens under aid, you know, it's support for health ministries to build data systems, support for groups who are working on international transparency to hold governments to account. And at least in theory, it's trying to, it's trying to address the very problems that you described, you know, the weak institutional problems. So I, I guess the question is, that do, do you feel that the system is, in a sense, so flawed that it can't do anything but shoot itself in the foot, as it were, with, with respect to its own objectives in, in that area? I probably do think that. But if I were running a place like ODI, I would certainly be pursuing these other things, too, because I'm not certain enough about it to go to war. Um, on that behalf. I do not write in the book, and I never have <coughs> argued against humanitarian aid as a matter of principle. Yeah. And I think it's extraordinarily difficult when people are, you know, in extremists and you can help um, to refuse to help. Um, that said, um, most of the worst possible cases are sort of Goma-like cases where, and have been humanitarian emergencies. Yeah. And then people seem to lose all the, I mean, the, the pressure and urgency is such 
that all caution is thrown to the winds and then really bad things um, can happen. So that's true. I think it's worth pursuing this idea that it's the delivery system that's wrong and we should prefer it. But, you know, there's a long history of people in AIDS saying, you know, it's nothing wrong with aid, it just has to be done smarter, it has to be done better or something. And those arguments have not had a terrific um, track record. And I wanted to talk about the last bit, but I forgot what it was. What's the last bit? Um, yeah, I, you, well, you said you wanted to say something about the things that we can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, there was something more specific than that. Well, it, we in, the, the, we, we're going to have uh, half an hour of questions. Yeah. Now, so you'll have so the, probably the come back to it. But I mean, I, you know, that's what I tell my students in Princeton, you know, because the most popular undergraduate course at Princeton is taught by Peter Singer, and it's on practical ethics. And he has this very naive view that, you know, you can go straight from ethical compulsion to uh, you must then go and help. And the idea to him that, um, you know, by giving money you could possibly do any harm is something he refuses to even consider. Mm -hmm. So when these students come to me and say, we just listened to you and we're sort of semi-convinced, what should we do? And I say, well, you should go to Washington or you should go to London or you should go to Paris or wherever you come from. And that's where the argument, where, where you have standing to make the argument. Oh, I know what the point was. I just want to say this very briefly. I mean, I've worked, the two places I know best are South Africa and, and India. And in both of those cases, once local NGOs start taking money from abroad, bad things happen to those local NGOs. And, you know, they're not the same as they were before. So, especially in South Africa, there were a lot of very good, um, you know, HIV um, NGOs. And then when they got taken over from abroad, they stopped being responsive. So there, there's a sort of NGO version of the state institution yeah. thing. And then one of the people I admire most in the world is, is my friend Jean Drez in India, who I've worked with for many years. And, you know, he will not take any money from abroad. And he claims he even gets some flack from writing papers with me, you know, because I'm at a neoliberal university and, you know, in, in neoliberal land. Um, and, um, and, you know, his legitimacy and his ability to do stuff depends on the people he's working with, the activists he's working with, believing that he's not a creature of any of these outside powers. And his ability to, you know, bring people together and do the amazing things he's been successful at doing depend on him having given up his Belgian citizenship, you know, become an Indian citizen, being a poor person along with other people and so on. And, you know, so that's the other thing I tell my kids they can do if they want. You know, I say that's the other way you know, like the camel through the eye of the needle sort of idea, which is, you know, go to Rwanda, marry a coffee farmer, you know, <laughs> get involved in local politics there, and, you know, and devote your life to the people you say you want to devote your life to. And I say, well, that'll work too. Um, but, you know, and they're saying, ooh, 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 wait a minute, you know, I, I, I just want to do this for three months before I go to Wall Street. Or <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, well, you know, by a tourist trip. Yeah. Okay. Um, Angus, that, that was great. Thank you so much for that. Um, so what I want to do now is throw open two questions. I, I'll take them in um, groups of three or four. If you can keep them relatively brief, because I want to get as many in um, as, as we can. So one, one right here. 
If you just, if you would start by saying who you are as well. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, such an interesting seminar. My name is Hina Akram, and I work um, at the Ministry of Justice as an assistant economist. And my question was really about um, something that you said at the start about education. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get your views on. Um, what you think about the expansion of private education in developing countries and in South Asia, and whether you think there's um, a lot that the private sector can do because of the public, <coughs> because public schools are so bad, as you said, with teacher, uh, teachers being absent. So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what you think on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Other, other initial questions? Again, thank you very much. And just to go back to kind of to the, oh, sorry, my name is Tom Dunn. I work for a company called Orbion. And to go back to the two of the themes that you did at the beginning, which was about the declines in child mortality and about the desire, the kind of the fundamental human desire that people have for things to get better for their families. And if you can just put that in the context, I don't really have a question, it's interesting in your observations then about that what that means for migration and about what that means for the institutions particularly here in Europe, because we, you know, it is a very fundamental and important question that is being raised every day at the moment, and I'm just interested to get your observations on that. Thanks. And then one right over here. Do I have an easier question? <laughs> not, not, not from this source, I know this guy. <laughs> uh, my name is Derek Defeld. I, I work here at the International Economic Development Group at ODI. Um, I've got a question about aid for trade. Um, so uh, there are some challenges about aid that you've mentioned. Uh, but you like trade uh, a lot. So um, there are quite a lot of uh, things we can do about trade policy uh, and how to make uh, trade uh, uh, work better. Um, but I suppose there are also questions about um, making sure that, that um, developing countries can, can trade uh, more, not just because of trade policy, but also because of productive capacities. So they need to, have, they need to be able to produce something in order to trade. So there might be a, a link between aid for trade. And I'm not talking here about tight aid at all. I'm talking here about, uh, think about soft and hard infrastructure, uh, think about roads connecting different countries, think about border posts. It might sound a bit boring, but it might be terribly effective uh, in, in helping uh, countries to, uh, to transform themselves uh, and in that process be able to, um, to pay the taxes uh, to, uh, to generate education and, and health that, that there is needed. So I'd like to hear you take a bit on aid for trade. So e even by normal standards, that's three quite tough <laughs> initial, <laughs> initial questions. So do, do you want to maybe take them in order? <laughs> Angus, so the, I think, the, sorry. Yeah. sorry. Um, I, I mean, I have my doubts, like most people, about private education. You know, in India, it's um, often of appallingly low quality. Um, but it's hard to see why you should prevent people from turning to that given the failure of the state to provide um, these opportunities. And um, so, I mean, I have not thought about this hard. And, you know, there are two things that should have been in my book and are not there. One of them is trade and one of them, sorry, one of them is education, one of them is migration. Um, and I was sort of conscious of that, but I was also conscious of the fact that this book is long enough the way it is. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be open to being persuaded. I'm sure there are troubles along the way. But, you know, if the state can't deliver um, health care or, um, or education to its people, 
Um, I certainly wouldn't try to make things worse by trying to stop them uh, using the private sector. Could, could I ask a follow-up yeah, question? Yeah, sure. Because, you know, the, there is an extension of that argument that, that says, look, you know, not, not only has the state failed, but the additional dollar that's put into a public system is producing a worse outcome than yeah. a dollar put into a private system. Therefore, the smart thing for a state to do is to provide vouchers, you know, to subsidize the private sector, to provide education yep. for, for the poor. I mean, I would be in favor of that too, though. I mean, it, we are talking about a very second best world here because, you know, there's lots of evidence that vouchers do very bad things too because you just move the smart kids out of the state schools and you make the state schools much worse. And so the people who don't have the money to go to the private schools are made even worse off as a result of that. So you get a distributional consequence, which is undesirable. But on the other hand, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, if you think of India um, and the fact that ordinary people have seen that people not very different from them or their own kids can get good jobs that did not used to exist before, if they can get some education, and then you would block off a route which would allow them to get some of that education. I mean, it just seems to me, you know. So you'd have to call it on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. But I think once you get to places like Latin America, the vouchers may be doing more harm than good. I don't know. Okay. That's not something I thought about a lot. Um, <laughs> on migration, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's extraordinary in a way because, you know, my father migrated a long way. He migrated from Yorkshire to Edinburgh you know, which in <laughs> 1940 or whatever it was, was actually sort of a long way. And, you know, I migrated from, you know, Bristol to Princeton. And so perhaps it would have, should have been a more central part. And it's clear that, you know, even the title of the book, The Great Escape, suggests migration, which has been such a huge part in the improvement of people's lives. Um, but, you know, ever, ever since, I mean, at the first news conference on the Nobel Prize, they asked me what I would do about migration in Europe. And I've been answering that question, or not answering that question, ever, um, ever since. And, you know, I don't have any solution for that. I mean, one of the things I'd like to point out, just to play into my own wheelhouse, is that, of course, the reason these people are coming here, as opposed to migrating to China or India or to Southern Africa, is because a theme we haven't really talked about today, which is progress tends to generate enormous inequalities in its wake. So, you know, what historians call the Great Divergence, which came with the Industrial Revolution and the Health Revolution, um, which was that, you know, as Britain and Northwest Europe moved away from the rest of the world, that was huge progress for the people who were there, and, but it left the rest of the world behind and opened up this enormous gap, which has never gone away. And that enormous gap is a perennial threat to the world, um, because then when there's a war in Syria or there's a war anywhere, um, guess where these people are going to go? They're going to go up um, that uh, gradient. Um, you know, as half American now, I mean, it, I just been stunned really with admiration which may not seem like from your perspective the right thing, the extent to which Europe has absorbed um, so many of those migrants whereas you know, America has promised to take in some tiny number and then has refused even to do that so that you know, we have a lot to learn from Europe. I don't have a solution for um, the sort of things that are going on um, there. 
but you know, if you, I, I read not very long ago Tony Chutt's history of um, Europe since the Second World War, and you know, if you look at what Europe was like, um, you know, between 1945 and early 50s and the ruin of Europe, and millions and millions of people living where they shouldn't have been or where they wouldn't have been, an enormous amount of migration and so on. And that was the beginning of the European miracle. You know, it was the beginning of the sort of uh, world order, which has brought so much prosperity to the world over the last 50 or 60 years. So maybe we'll look back on this period <coughs> too. I mean, it's clear for the reasons we've been talking about that the world is going to be different um, from now on in. Um, and the EU is going to have to reform or it's going to fall apart. And, you know, so maybe there's a convulsion like that, which will, I hope, bring much more democracy and bring better things to more people. But I, I don't have detailed solutions right now. Um, this is a great question, too, about aid for trade. Um, I think I would probably do it in a slightly different way. I mean, one of, one of the responses to the book, and when I talk to my friends in the World Bank and people, they're often talk about things like this which is they say we're giving aid to build institutions. We're not giving aid, you know, so we're giving aid. We, we can tell people how to run their judiciary <coughs> so it works better. We can give them hints for how they would do that. So the aid for trade I take to be sort of like that. You say here, here is some of the infrastructure and, and we'll help pay for that. I'm not sure why we have to pay for it though. Um, so that, that I turn the question back a little bit. I mean, in my world, I would turn the World Bank into a competitor with McKinsey or something. You know, there's an enormous amount of knowledge in the World Bank and useful advice that many countries are quite hungry to have. There's a lot of experience there, a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking hard and doing things, and they've been to the countries and they've experienced. And experience is a hugely undervalued resource in this business, I think. Um, but the World Bank can't give that aid because by and large it will only give technical assistance along with loans. And that's been a catastrophe because a lot of the um, middle income or lower middle income countries that are not borrowing from the bank anymore because it's so onerous to borrow from the bank, then don't get this technical assistance. So it's, it's just a terrible situation. And I don't see why if the bank were you know, a giant consultancy company um, and we can subsidize it if we want, you know, let the rich countries pay for something. It's very much in my view of the way we should do aid, which is to build institutions here, um, which can help them there. Um, so, you know, if I don't see why the bank couldn't earn its own keep, but on the other hand, if we wanted to provide, you know, when you think of countries negotiating trade deals and bilateral deals with the U.S. or something, and on the U.S. side there's a phalanx of lawyers from the pharmaceutical companies and the banks and so on, and on the country side there's a guy who's an MPA from the LSE or from Princeton or something, you know, the bank ought to be providing manpower and woman power on the other side of that argument. And that sort of assistance I would be very much in favor of. So perhaps that's close. Yeah. Okay, uh, one quick supplementary, if you want. Well, I mean, one of the questions of, of why why um, there should there might be support is 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 because <coughs> there might be market and coordination failures out there in the development of of infrastructure um, um, and the like. And I think that there's a there's a, a role for a, for a strong state. 
and then the question has become how, how can it be, be, uh, be sub uh, supported? And I think uh, it is quite important to make sure that, that there is an industrial policy out there to, to, to think about this, and this could be supported in various ways. Um, the, the, uh, I, there are some, some programs that have, for example, helped to reduce the, co the cost of trade from, say, Uganda to, to, through Mombasa by, um, by, by half. And I think that is something that can benefit um, those that send goods, but also those that, 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 um, that, that receive goods. And I think it's a, of mutual benefit. Uh, so it's both those that, that provide the aid and those that, 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 that receive aid. Yeah, just a, a quick reaction to that. I mean, obviously, you know, there are these things which say here's some technical thing which if we implement it, make things better. Um, what always I'm concerned about is what look like technical solutions to what are in effect political problems. Um, and you know, it, it has to be the case that the people in the countries want that stuff and it's not coming from outside, that's <coughs> all. But I'll t I take the point, yeah. Okay, another, let's have another round of questions. Right back. Thank you for your talk. Uh, Did it say you are? Is it Professor? Uh, sorry, yeah, my name's uh, Francis Eckhart. Um, do you have a comment on a report in the I newspaper today that uh, an organization called War on Want has said that there's 101 LSE uh, stock market companies and uh, the amounts of profits they're taking, uh, mining companies, uh, asset stripping in Africa, uh, the profits taken out are greatly exceed the aid going into some of those countries and a lot of those profits are taken uh, um, via tax havens. Okay. And secondly, in case you didn't notice, um, apparently the, the average life expectancy in Glasgow is about 71 in certain districts. Okay. Other, other questions? Please. Hi, uh, Andreas Dimitri, postgraduate student at the LSE. Uh, so my question is uh, regard, regards your thoughts on a growing trend that uh, has been observed the uh, past few decades, where um, increasingly a smaller and smaller part of the total population, especially in developed countries, uh, is adding a bigger and bigger part of the total value added in the economy, mainly because there are interoccupations which tend to be more uh, intensive, high-skill, knowledge-based. And as you said before, there is this growing number of people who are essentially marginalized. And we see the trend kind of uh, uh, trickling down into emerging economies where wages go up and some of the job goes away. For example, in China, jobs have been lost to Vietnam. And so my question is, uh, have you thought of, uh, in the end, if when, say, many of the developing countries manage to get there, but we still have that issue, how will we address that problem? Okay, other, other, other questions? Uh, front row. Thanks, Stephen Gill from the ODI. Um, at the beginning of your talk, or of the conversation, you talked a lot about the importance of public policy and public agency. And then you criticized aid um, for a whole lot of, you know, I think fairly good reasons, good arguments. But 
what you haven't talked about, and maybe you do in the book, I haven't read it, uh, is how does public policy, and in particular the state, actually become stronger than it is, become more capable of doing the things that you would like them to do uh, that uh, Dirk behind me referred to earlier in terms of industrial policy? And is there a role for, ex let's call it external finance, in that, whether it's coming from the international environment or from uh, domestic sources for philanthropy and so on outside of the state. How does that work in, in your view? Do, do you want to start with that one? I mean, that, that's a really big question that yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. No. Re relates to the sort of Semler and Robinson arguments as well, that, you know, that, that you know, the, the, because do, you know, donors have the idea that you can use aid for state building. Right. There is that whole language. and. And, and actually, I think you know, one of the points that you make in the book is that you know states evolve in very complicated ways for all sorts of difficult reasons. But maybe may, may start with with, with yeah. that issue. I, I don't believe that, but you know, I, and but I'm not naive about it. So I, I don't I don't believe you can build states from the outside. Um, and well, it happens the way it's happened around the world in the countries that built their states, which is haphazardly and with great difficulty, but from internally. So I'm not naive that if you took the aid away, then everything would be rosy. I mean, that history suggests that's not true for a minute. But I don't think you can find cases where countries were built from the outside. And if you're building them from the outside, you know, obviously, and, and, well, first of all, a lot of it, there's a huge contribution from the outside, which just comes from the knowledge that exists in the world about how to do things. So that is available. And also, we can do a lot more to develop knowledge in areas that are of less priority to us, but are of great priority to them. That does not involve undermining institutions in the country itself. So I'm thinking of you know diseases that we don't have. We could spend a lot more money um, on researching those diseases. Um, there's trade policy in which essentially poor countries are not represented or not very strongly represented in trips negotiations and all sorts of things like that. But I mean, I just don't think. I mean, it's it's a very attractive idea, but I think you know the the deep contradiction that's been built into development policy from the very start is this idea that development is a technical problem, not a political problem. And if you undermine the local politics, it'll all go to hell in a handbasket. So you know, my bible is probably Ferguson's book on the anti-politics machine. I, mean, I think that's what happens, and I just don't know how you avoid that, though it's enormously tempting to say we can give aid for state building. I don't think we can. Um, and we create the sort of dictators. If they're not there to start with, they'll emerge. Because if you've got this enormous hose of money pouring into the country, and you know these numbers are enormous. So if you, if you just go through the ODI statistics, the ODA statistics, um, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I'm flattered. Locally, <laughs> locally affected. Um, you know, there are 20 or 30 countries in Africa who are getting more than all of government expenditure from abroad. So, you know, we're not just talking about nibbling at the margin here. We're talking about the whole animal. Um, 
And, you know, and it's still true for people like Mugabe who are getting like 40, 50% of their budgets from abroad. And the French are pouring money into, you know, every sort of nasty guy in West Africa, um, as far as I can see, with no holds barred at all. Um, you know, I'm sure they say they're state building, but I don't think that's what's happening. And I, this is very, I mean, I would have some sort of rule, you know, if I'm not allowed to help <coughs> this all together. I would say, you know, we should not be giving aid to countries, you know, where more than 30 or 40 percent of government expenditure is coming from abroad, because then why would the guys who are running the country pay any attention whatsoever to their own citizens? And, you know, that's, you don't get involved with that. Bad. Let me turn to these um, yeah, other questions. I think mining is a huge problem, and, um, you know, the, the commodity price curse, to me, is parallel to aid. Um, you know, because you've got a huge amount of money coming into the country that funds these guys, which they don't have to, um, you know, they, they don't have to, um, don't have to respond to anything. And, you know, I tell in the book the story about what happened in Egypt after the American Civil War, you know, when, <laughs> you know, and it's one of the most spectacular stories I mean, of something that was sort of going along all right. And then the American Civil War came along, and the price of cotton went up fivefold overnight, or something. And then, you know, the government got rich, and then the government essentially destroyed the country. Um, and you know, that that's a, another one of these tales that everybody in development ought to know. My apologies for saying bad things about Scottish life expectancy. I'm sure <laughs> there are some people in Scotland who live to a great age, in spite of the general trend. Um, Okay, this point here is a very important one, I think, which is, um, but I think it's something all countries are facing, you know, the rich countries and the poor countries. And, you know, the other side to this is you've got this whitening inequality over education. Um, you know, that, that's something we don't like. On the other hand, it is an enormous incentive to people to get educated. So this is sort of positive side of this thing. And it has led to enormous amount of extra education being done. So, you know, in some sense, that's one of the underlying <coughs> themes of The Great Escape, which is you get these things, these episodes of progress, and they generate inequality along the way. And the education is sort of one of those things, because you say, okay, let's up the rate of return to education. That'll produce many more educated people. It'll make the world a better place, and that's true. But if you're not the sort of person who benefits from education, um, then you're going to be left behind by that. And, you know, you can't have everything. It's sort of the way history works out. And you hope that in the end, the, these people get to vote. And that's why democracy is a very important part of the story and why, coming back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that sort of bad things are happening here and in the US because you've got a large share of people who did not get that education. You know, the people I was talking about before, these people who have a high school degree but no more than that. And they're just not benefiting from this. And also, they've been shut out of politics. <coughs> and that seems to be one of the issues here, too, yeah. that neither political party, each your, both your political parties seem to be in terrible disarray. Um, we have the same problem in the US, that neither political party seems to be representing these people. Um, and so that's going to have to be changed somehow in order to make things better. And that's going to lead to terrible uncertainty and danger. Um, to the whole order sort of idea. And that, in some sense, is, is the great threat of inequality. You know, that if you leave big chunks of people behind for a long period of time, 
they're going to come and get you sooner or later in ways that you may not have anticipated. Okay, um, I've got one last question I want to squeeze in, but okay. before I, let's just take um, a last round, if, um, Tom. Tom Hart, I'm here at ODI. Um, your critique of aid to countries seems to focus a lot on giving aid to governments. What do you think of what do you think of the argument that with new technologies and so on, that aid can be given directly to poor people, and that could even strengthen the social contract because governments can then try and tax some of that income back? Thanks, economics at SOAS, the University of London. And I wanna ha I'm asking a question directed towards you as an economics professor. How can, the, how can teaching in the university in economics, how can it be transformed? How can we get away from a hierarchy of evidence where randomized control trials are sort of the gold standard and other sorts of evidence also accepted? And um, so how can we get away from an ideology-based teaching economics, which also inherently implies policy implications that are based on ideology, talking about neoliberalism, Washington consensus, and so on. Okay, um, advocates for randomized controlled trials might want to leave the room right now. <laughs> no, not really good really um, Okay, why, why didn't we take I'd, those I'd love two. to answer those two. Yeah. yeah. So, I, one of the examples I give about, um, this is an example I think about, you have to think through the politics in particular situation. So I like to give the example of, you know, you, you're living in your nice neighborhood and some guy moves in next door who's a member of some crazy cult, right? And he has a wife that he abuses and keeps in a very bad situation, barely gives her enough to eat, and she's basically a slave for him. And you feel that you have a moral responsibility to do something about this, and this person is really hurting, and she's your neighbor, and you would like to do something. So. What would you do? Well, you could give him some money, <laughs> which seems like a really bad idea. Right? <laughs> um, but giving her some money is just as bad an idea of giving him any money, because she is totally under his control, and so it'll go to him. So maybe you should give him some money with conditions. Right? <laughs> that might be better. And you'd say, OK, it will only keep this money going if you're much nicer to your wife than you are now. And that might work. On the other hand, you have a neighbor on the other side who says, you know, bad old Deaton over there is not giving you any money anymore. We'll give you the money anymore. And then, you know, he gets to keep the money again. So, I mean, the point is if you have what Asimoglu and Johnson call an extractive regime, which a lot of the time you have, and they actually have control over their own people, you can't help them um, with money from outside. And it doesn't matter whether you give it to them or whether you give it to the government, right? Now, it's true that on a small scale, you can probably give it to them because there's not enough for the government to bother extracting it. But it's not a question of just taxing it. I mean, it may be a question of taxing, but they just take it. And, you know, the, the development literature is full of cases like that where you try to help people and you just make them targets <coughs> for the people who are exploiting. So unless you change the political equilibrium, you can't actually get out of this problem. And, you know, I, I think the RCTs on this are just complete nonsense because um, you're looking at a completely artificial situation in which the political channel, which is the most important thing, is being completely cut off. And, you know, and to come back to this question, I mean, one of my big strikes about RCTs is once again, I mean, quite apart from the fact that they don't do what people think they do, um, and, you know, there are all sorts of statistical 
econometric problems with them, is that they're once again trying to replace what is essentially a political problem um, with a technical one. And they're drawing attention away to these minor technicalities which we think we can sort of handle and ignoring all the unintended consequences, all the political stuff, and so on. You cannot work in development, whether you agree with me or you disagree with me, without thinking about the political structure in which you're working. And I mean, you know, otherwise you're just fooling yourself. You know, you, and you may come to a different conclusion than I do about how that political structure works and how you can influence it. But if you're not talking about politics and you're not talking about what people really want in their lives, you're not dealing with this at all. I mean, I agree completely with Duncan Green when he says, you know, this is not about poverty, it's about power. You know, and, and power in politics is, is really where you are here. So that perhaps addresses your question a little bit too. So there's two bits of this. I'm totally opposed to, ran well, I'm not totally opposed to randomized controlled trials. I'm totally opposed to the idea that randomized controlled trials can make poverty history by the application of science, whereas before people were just flying by the seat of their pants or something. Um, and this, again, is one more example of what I call the technocratic illusion that you know, these are technical problems and not political problems. It, it's interesting, though, on the broader issue of what's being taught in economics and the whole question as to whether teaching could be rethought. And I've been asked this several times in the, in the week or so I've been here. And it's very interesting because as people here see American economics as much more hegemonic than I see it as I sit in American economics. And um, because it seems to me that we have an immensely open profession in which people are turning things upside down all the time. And there's certainly no discipline where I sit on what you're allowed to work on and what you're not allowed to work on. And even what I think has been the long-standing horrendous weakness of American economics, which is this unwillingness to think about distributional issues at all. You know, as soon as that became a big political issue in the U.S., there are thousands of people working on it all over academia at all. So I just, you know, I, I don't think that if there's an ideology there, there's certainly many people have their own ideologies, but I don't think there's any dominant ideology which is shaping the way that people do economics. We're very fortunate to be in a profession where, you know, at the age of 23, you can be tenured at Harvard or something. And so young people are coming along all the time, even the RCT stuff. You know, I mean, the, the dominant figure there was Esther Duflo, and she comes from France, and she's a Huguenot, and she's completely different from everybody else. And she did all this by the time she was 32 years old or something. So the idea that this is a closed profession in which new ways of doing things are not open, I think is, is, is really overstated. Um, and, but it, it's true that many people here seem to think American economics is pumping out this very ideological thing. I, I just don't see it. It seems very open um, to me. And, you know, people think of me as being a weird economist and, you know, having very weird views, but no one's ever tried to do bad things to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do because they get up and say you're talking nonsense or something, but not, at, not in any sort of institution. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, but, um, uh, you know, it's, you, have, you have to remind yourself that the fact that it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it won't happen in the future. Right, there is that. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I just wanted to, I want to squeeze one course, final yeah. question, if, if I could. So, going back to the discussion we had on globalization, and, you know, you, you described the problem really well, and if I think of, you know, the literature in the US, you know, the influence of Robert Putnam's 
book, our, our kids of you know Joe yeah, yeah, Stevens' yeah. work on education, your work on health, and there are analogues for that yes. in the UK, and it, it's sort of very descriptive of, yes. of a problem, and it, it and it's become almost a consensus, like you know everybody buys it more or less. So you know yesterday we were discussing this before we had Theresa May liberally quoting a former Labour Party leader on the importance of distribution. Yeah, yeah you know, getting business back under control, under control remembering the marginalised. I, I just wonder, you know, what, what, what is a prescription for a more, you know, a, a fairer pattern of managing globalisation in countries like the US or the UK look like? I know that's a really broad question to ask, but, you know, because I, I guess where the consensus breaks down is that, you know, you've got one school of thought that would say this is all about opportunity, you know, build the education right, system. Right. But that takes, you know, education yeah, yeah. is a long fuse. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so, I mean, what, what are the sort of more immediately redistributive strategies that we ought to be thinking about? I'm not sure that... Um, okay, two things. I'm not sure education is such a long fuse. Because if I were a 50-year-old um, white working-class person in America, and my life had not worked out the way I'd hoped it was going to work out. And then I could see that my kids couldn't get into good schools anymore. That would not be a short fuse. That would, sorry, that would not be a long fuse. That would be something to make me really upset right now. And there's some evidence that that's actually happening. I mean, if you look at the elite schools in the US, um, in order to fund themselves, they're taking in an enormous number of rich kids. So you, you go to a really high quality um, private school in New York City, um, half the kids there are hedge fund managers' kids, and the other half are minorities um, who've been brought in on affirmative action grant, and the white middle class is nowhere at all. And, and nowhere at all is too strong, but you hear that all the time. They say there's no point in us even applying for these kids because unless I'm black or I'm rich, there's no way I'd ever get into the school. So I, th I think it's got a fairly short views. Mm -hmm. So my view about, first of all, it's not just globalization. I mean, it, it's automation is incredibly important too. And I think there's reasonably good grounds to worry about the robots more than to worry about the Chinese in some sense. Or, you know, the, there's a lot of forces out there that are very, very difficult um, for people. Um, I'm a great believer in, you know, you see, we, we haven't talked about inequality very much per se, but for me, um, I don't see inequality per se as really the problem um, in that if I think people get rich in ways that make themselves and other people better off, I really want to encourage that. And that's the argument the conservatives always make, and that part of the argument is right. What I think is terrible is people getting rich at the expense of other people, which is the sort of rent-seeking, what the banks are doing, you know, what the pharmaceutical companies are doing, what the hospitals in America are doing. There's enormous concentration that's going on in so many industries that's driving down the wage share. So, you know, I would not be for redistributive policy. I would be through political reform that stops that lobbying working as effectively as it does and that gives a voice to everybody and not just the people who have money. Um, because, you know, if, if I can invent something and make me fabulous rich and everybody's happy with it, that's great. But if I can go to Washington and persuade some people to increase the price of all drugs, you know, or, or and the pharmaceutical companies, Anne and I get these letters all the time from their lawyers, you know, just trying to keep us in line and say, you know, don't say those things anymore. 
and they're incredibly powerful in Washington. So the people in Washington know what has to be done about these opioids, but there's huge pressure on them um, not to do that. I mean, I think we've got to stop that somehow. And I think some of that is campaign finance reform in America. I mean, you, you've just got to reduce the influence of money and increase the influence of the people who've been excluded. So it's that sort of, to me, that political redistribution is what I'd like to see. Um, in America, at least, financial redistribution is incredibly hard, and most people don't want it. Um, and maybe the day will come when it does, but it's, it's, that's not a popular prescription. Okay. Angus. Thank you so much. That was absolutely wonderful session to have with you. Um, I, I do want to say to everyone, if you haven't um, bought and read this, please, please do. It's an absolutely fantastic book. And I think for all of the, uh, those of us who, you know, who really care about these health inequality issues and these basic life chances, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a book of profound insight. So I want to say a big thank you to all of you guys. And, and Angus, above all, a very big thank you to you. And please thank come back soon. Thank you for inviting me. It's terrific to be Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.